The talk I want to give tonight is on the topic of the spiritual journey, whatever that means. And I'll say a few things first off about it. The first most important thing to know is that the spiritual journey is not straight. Sometimes we think we kind of step on a path and then we just go, right? It just heads upward until bliss and then perfection or something like that. But I'll tell you that that is not the case. Most people experience the spiritual journey as a lot of ups and downs and bumps and all sorts of um, movement. And sometimes we, we can think of it, I like to think of it like it's a spiral, you know, that's slowly going up. Like it starts it starts low, let's just say low for now. But anyway, it starts somewhere and then it just gets more, go around and we fall backwards and we mess up and we take another step. And so it's not a linear path. It's not a linear path. It's vast and lengthy. It's all of life, actually. Because ultimately, once you take a step on this path, and really, when I'm saying spiritual path, what I'm referring to really is a commitment to devoting our life to waking up, to more wisdom and more compassion, to living, um, to living with more goodness in the world. And there's a lot of nuances. I'm going to kind of pull it apart tonight, but uh, but just what I was going to say is that. Once you step on it, even if you feel like you've fallen off, you haven't. So those of us who've come in to talk to me today and they say, oh, I was meditating so regularly and then I stopped for a couple of years and wow, I've really fallen off the wagon. And so there's a sense of like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I've, I've left what was important to me, but really you can't fall off. So it's vast, it's lengthy, it's all of life. Nothing is excluded. Everyone's is completely different. Everyone's story is different. And it's all about the story of coming home to our vast true nature. This is the spiritual path. So I'm going to tell some stories from my own path. And I'll tell you that every time I talk about it, I talk about it differently. Because I'm in a different place each time and I reconstruct things and I frame it in different ways and you'll probably always tell yours in different and interesting ways. One of, um, I think the first memory I have of something that was along these lines was when I was about 12 or 13 and I was in a, um, I was in kind of like a beach town and I remember it was late at night and I was lying on the grass in, in, on this big lawn where I was living at the time. And it was dark and I, I looked up at the sky and I saw the stars and the stars looked so vast. And suddenly this feeling came over me of, of love. And it was like, it shocked me. It just came out of the blue. It took me over. And I, and I was like, what is this? What's going on? I feel like I love everything. And then, and so nothing brought it on really. It just, it just was there. And other than kind of the immensity of the stars. And then I was, I said to myself, I need to test this out. And I thought of the person that I hated the most, <laughs> who was at the time my friend, my, you know, my friend's older teenage brother. And I brought him to mind and I thought, oh my God, I love him too. <laughs> And then I went to bed, and then it faded, and then I went on with life. And we've all had these kinds of stories, most of us. Most people have a story, a memory as a child of some kind of connection or sense of something greater than themselves. And oftentimes it's like that. It's brief. We sort of forget about it. But it may, it, it, it's... This access to our own inner lives that is really available for us, it's our birthright. It's part of who we are. And so 
what then happens is we get away from it. And so in some ways, the spiritual path is just a step leading us back to where we were, to, to our home, our inner home. So after that, I, you know, lived life and became a fairly kind of driven person, interested in success and getting good grades and going to college and succeeding and doing well. And I was, and I was like always on the go and running around and, and at the same time, I had this interest in, in the East and I spent, I, you know, I, I went abroad and during college I lived in Thailand for a while and then I after college I went back to to Asia and then to India because I was always interested but initially I wasn't so I wasn't ready to dive into spiritual practice it didn't really interest me I was very political and so the first work I was doing in um, the well what I was doing in India when I went was working with um, Tibetan refugees and I was living in Dharamsala, India, which is where the Dalai Lama has the government in exile. And I was really interested in the political cause, but there were all these meditation teachings going on. And I would kind of, I was sort of interested, but I, I so I ended up sitting in the back of these halls where they were giving the teaching and taking out large bars of chocolate and unwrapping it really loudly and crackling and just like, what is this? But something drew me. And so much so that I thought, you know, I want to do a meditation retreat. Why not? And I did my first meditation retreat of about 10 days. And um, I remember, again, being skeptical and not sure and a lot of discomfort and all of the things that I'm sure many of you are experiencing here. And then there was this moment for me where the the leader of the retreat said, talked about something that's called the the four well the eight worldly winds or the eight dharmas which are the tr- what what's called the tr- essentially the truths about reality that there are these pairs of opposites that always come together so whether where there's pleasure there's pain where there is gain there is loss where there is Fame, there's disrepute. And where there is praise, there's blame. And that what most people do is they spend their lives seeking the positive side of things, thinking, trying to sustain it, trying to keep, if only I can stay famous forever, say our celebrities, right? You know, if, if only I never can lose anything and always gain. But what happens is that it's inevitable. Just, it's the nature of reality, the four worldly winds, or the eight worldly winds, the nature of reality. It comes and goes. The good comes, the bad comes. And I heard this teaching, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this explains my life. This explains my life. I have been madly seeking Basically, praise. That was the one that was big for me. I wanted to succeed. I wanted everybody to love me. I wanted to get the A from the teacher. I wanted them to think I was great. And I run away like crazy from the other one, running from blame, terrified to be blamed. And then the the leader of the retreat, who was a Buddhist nun, she said, but there is actually, there is a response. There's something you can do. I thought, great, what is it? And she said, it's have a mind that can be okay with no matter what life brings. And I heard that and I thought, I want that. I know, it was greedy, right? <laughs> but it was for the right kind of, right kind of thing. Um, but this, the idea that in the face of whatever conditions life brings us, that we can have a mind of evenness and balance and be okay when we're praised, when we're blamed, when there's gain, when there's loss. And it, it is possible. My experience now, 30 years later, is it's absolutely possible that through these practices, we learn to develop this quality of equanimity, of even-mindedness, of balance, of ease, of not being so identified and caught in our stories, of freedom, 
that freedom can come. And it's just, it's so delightful to be in a journey that helps, that, that makes us more and more free, not more and more contracted and more and more dependent upon the positive in order to be happy, but more and more free in the midst of whatever conditions life brings. So I went from there that year to, um, to Thailand and did my first Vipassana or mindfulness retreat. And probably some of my biggest memories of that was that you were sleeping on slab stones, like concrete stones. There was no <laughs> mattress. And that the one thing they said at this monastery in Thailand is, make sure when you go into your room, you check your shoes for scorpions. Right. So that was like my biggest experience of the retreat. But, but what I experienced was this wild mind, you know, this wild mind that didn't want to be reined in, that was running like a wild horse all over the place, trying to figure out, trying to gain, trying to get, trying to, trying to achieve, trying to, you know, worrying, obsessive worrying, anxiety. This is this mind that just showed up on the retreat. And I remember thinking, when's it going to shut up? (laughs) Like, if I practice hard enough, maybe it will shut up. And I remember raising my hand. And I was usually, I was like kind of, I mean, back then, there weren't a lot of young people practicing in the way there is a lot more now. And I remember I was probably like the youngest person on the retreat. I was maybe like 21, 22. I remember raising my hand and I said, I think I've, um, I haven't stopped my mind from thinking at all. But I think I've had a moment or two of peace. <laughs> and the teacher was like, great, great, you're getting somewhere. And, and so what I learned was, of course, what you're learning, which is that it's a process, right? That it's, that it's not easy what we're doing. That we have this mind that has, through our whole lifetime, been in search of more and more distractions. That's constantly on the alert for threats that now is being asked to be a little bit more focused, gathered still. And of course, you've run into a lot of obstacles, and we've seen these obstacles, and as did I, the sleepiness that everybody's talking about. So many of us have been so sleepy, and but we're maybe now just starting to wake up, and guess what? The retreat's about to end. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's... The restless mind, right? The restless mind, just like I was describing, this wild horse of a mind running around. The doubt and confusion. What am I doing here? What, what, why did I even come to this retreat? What's the point? Is it really helping? Do those teachers know what they're talking about? Come on, right? This doubting mind. Or the desire arising, I want this. If I can only get this, then I'll be happy. If I could only get a really good place in the lunch line, I know I'm going to have a great afternoon. Know what I mean? Or the aversive mind, I hate this. I don't want to be here. I want to go. Or boredom. Or loneliness. Or fear or, you know, all of these things, believe me, all of these things went through my mind on this first retreat and on many subsequent retreats. Because this is a completely natural thing that happens when we meditate. It's so natural that it's been cataloged throughout a lot of the Buddhist literature and the mindfulness literature, and it's called the five hindrances, or we call it the five obstacles. But the things that get in the way or appear to get in the way of our meditation practice. And so you're trying to be focused, but instead you're getting all this something else, some other kind of distraction. And you take it personally. Oh, if I were a better meditator, this wouldn't be showing up. But the fact is it shows up in everybody. And when you find that out, it's a little bit freeing. Like, oh, I'm not the only one who's experiencing restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, wanting, and hatred. It's in everybody. Isn't that relieving? And then the really good news is that we discover that there's things you can do to work with it. And we've been sharing that over the last couple of days. We've been sharing when you're sleepy, you can stand up. When you're restless, you can get more spacious. When you're feeling a lot of emotional energy, you can feel what's happening inside your body. 
All of these tools are ways of working with these obstacles. And we can also see the obstacles not as a problem, but as part of our path. That these obstacles, that's what's happening. And guess what? We get to be mindful of them. Perhaps we like to be mindful of a mind that's completely peaceful, but instead we're going to be mindful of sleepiness. What's that feel like in our bodies? What's the restlessness like? And as we start to become aware of it, these obstacles actually become just another piece of our mindfulness experience. Oh, okay, I'm just, go, I'm just experiencing this obstacle. And it's, it's actually this great analogy for life. And it's really part of this spiritual journey, the spiritual path I'm talking about, that, we, um, that what we think of as an obstacle, oh, if only I didn't have to take care of my aging parent, if only I hadn't lost my job, if only life were different in this way, is actually this is it. This is what we have to work with. And this is the path. And that every step of the path can lead to more and more freedom. This is what the spiritual journey is about. That everything we do can lead to more compassion, more understanding. I mean, if we don't take it that way, it can lead to more separation, anger, hatred, recrimination, right? If we, but if we look at things through the lens of how is this about waking up? How is this about finding more connection, more compassion? Then life is very, very different and all of life becomes a spiritual journey. So at, for me, after I did that first retreat, I remembered there was a, a, a nun at the monastery and she said, did you like your experience? And I said, well, like isn't the word, but I thought it was pretty important for me. And she said, well, if you really want to do something, I would go on this three-month retreat. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. But actually, that's what I did. And you know <laughs> I was a little naive. I didn't really know what I was doing. I kind of got like thrown into the deep end. But um, but it happened to be near where I lived in the States. And when I went back to the States and I started doing over many years, a number of long retreats of three months at a time and um, several times. And then also longer retreats. I went back to Asia and lived in the monastery in Myanmar and Burma and meditated there for a year. And I'll share a little bit about that. But um, during this period, I was on my spiritual quest, okay? And it was very obviously a spiritual quest. I was meditating. I was going on retreat. That's what I did. I lived on retreat. I, everything you're doing here, that's how I spent most of my time. And then I'd get out of the retreat waitress to make some money so that I could go on my next retreat. And that's what I did for many years, actually, um, until I started working in nonprofits and doing other things, but um, but what? And I will confess that the part of me that was driven prior to my spiritual practice was dri- was the same was in operation still with my spiritual practice. So that kind of driven type A got to succeed now got transferred over to okay, got to get enlightened. Hopefully next week this is going to happen. Need more insight, more understanding. I have to get an A in meditation. And there was I mean there were a lot of wonderful wholesome motivations behind what I was doing too. I mean I was in love with the practice. I was learning so much about myself. I was deepening my wisdom and my compassion. All of that was true. And there was this other thread that was going on. But what started to open up was this doorway into insight. And this is, I mean, Vipassana, you know, you're on insight meditation for the curious. So Vipassana, the translation of it is insight meditation or seeing clearly. Vipassana, the word seeing clearly. And what happens is that we are, when we're meditating our, and you, you see that you start to focus and calm and concentrate your mind, you gather and collect your mind, and then you begin to see more clearly. So one analogy that's sometimes used is like if you're, um, 
if you have a, can't think of the word. Okay, like, have you ever tried to harness the rays, the sun's rays in order to burn something? Did you ever do that as a kid? Like you, you use a magnifying glass and get the sun to go through it and then you burn a piece of paper. It's kind of like that. When your attention is scattered, it's hard to see clearly. When your attention is gathered, you, uh, you can see more clearly. And there's power to it. Another analogy that we often use when we teach mindfulness with kids is we take out a glitter ball. So a glitter ball is that plastic ball that's see-through, and it has glitter inside. And we shake it up and we say, I don't really teach meditation with kids. This is what other people do. Um, You shake it up. And you see that, you say, this is our mind that's all shook up. It's like, it, our mind's like this. And then they put the glitter ball in front of the kids and they, and they have the kids breathe a few times and the glitter starts to fall down to the bottom of the ball. And then, oh, can see clearly. So the idea is when our minds are so stirred and stirred up and churned up, it's hard to see clearly. But once we settle it down, that's when we can. And so out of that can emerge insight and understanding. And I know that many of you, based on having been in the interviews and the groups and listening to your questions, you're starting to have different kinds of insights. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, I haven't really had any insights. They're not necessarily a big deal. They might be like, oh, my left nostril breathes more deeply than my right nostril. <laughs> or oh, I should have asked that person to the dance in seventh grade. You know, I mean, they can be really varied in terms of what they are. And sometimes they're quite profound. You know, sometimes people report just walking outside and feeling this depth connection to nature and this lack of separation and this lack of, of, of the sense of me. It's almost like the identity dissolves. And we can be present and here and fully awake in this moment. And sometimes the insight, it's an insight into our patterns and our habits and our psychological makeup. And I know people were talking about that today, that they, they, they saw ways in which the same patterns they do outside of here are manifesting in the meditation hall. So in my example is, is, um, I was a perfectionist and I was trying to get my A in life and then I was doing it in meditation and I had to work really hard against that tendency to over effort so much so that I was driving myself crazy, right? Like I'm trying so hard. If you try too hard in meditation, oh boy. Sometimes I've seen, I remember times sitting there trying to meditate, trying to keep my attention on my breath and my entire body is tense and tight and I'm sweating like crazy. There's something a little off, right? But when we settle back and relax and realize we don't have to get the A, that it's really about letting life reveal itself. Ah, still making effort, but finding a way to do it in a balanced way. So we, more and more understanding can come. Sometimes we get what we, what I was talking about and what Mark was kind of referring to, this, this acceptance of being with what is, this lack of resistance to reality, and what we often call disidentification. Instead of feeling like it's my problem, my emotion, my grief, my sadness, it just becomes the grief or the sadness moving through us. And we feel space and relief and understanding. And so this process of insight arising is something that happens as we meditate. So I was saying, as our mind gathers and calms down and also settles, and as we look at things over and over, you know, paying attention to our breath, which can seem really super boring, it's actually so important that we're noticing the same thing over and over again because it takes time to see clearly. It takes time. Intimacy happens over time. Have you ever heard people say that the definition, not the dictionary definition, but a definition of intimacy is into me I see. Into me I see. Intimacy happens over time. And so 
when you when you give yourself the space and time, there's a settling that happens that allows our own inherent wisdom to arise. That's not a head-based knowledge, but more like a body-up knowing that we can really trust. So... So, and insights can come in other ways too. It can come through listening to someone talking. It can come through uh, reading. It can come through writing. It can come through a conversation with a friend. It can, you know, insights can come all over the place, but they're so beautiful when they arise in meditation and you can't force it. You can't force it. You can't go looking for it. Okay, insight, come on, I'm waiting. I've been meditating for an hour. When are you going to come? It doesn't work like that. We have to settle back. Now, I definitely got attached to my insights. I remember once working with a teacher and he said, are you lining your insights up like little tchotchkes on a (laughs) bookshelf? And I said, I thought, yeah, I kind of am, but so what? (laughs) I, I, I got really into what was happening in my meditation practice. And like I said, there was a lot of positive reasons why I was meditating, so many. And there was also this kind of drivenness behind it. And so I ended up, I wanted to take the next step. This was about a decade later. I wanted to take the next step. And that's when I went and I lived in a monastery in Myanmar and, um, and I, I, there's a lot of stories I can tell you, but I'm kind of not going to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can listen to another talk or something if you want to hear about that. But, but the, the point of that experience for me, and there were many things that happened in the year, and I, I became a nun and I ordained, I shaved my head, and I lived with different rules, which included not eating after 12 noon and, uh, renouncing, renouncing everything I owned, which actually just meant I put it in storage, and um, and living a very simple life of meditation practice. But I was again very driven, very driven. Okay, now that I'm doing it as a nun, something really good's going to happen. I hope. And um, what I found was that, like, there. So, so there was a lot of meditating, a lot of time of meditating. But there was a period for me where suddenly it dawned on me that there was something going on behind my striving and my need to do this so successfully. And it happened after I had a really hard time in the monastery because I tried too hard and kind of fell apart. And in that recognition that I had fallen apart, meaning just I was very, I was having a lot of um, challenging emotions and a lot of self-hatred. And I began to realize that I was striving to reach some kind of ideal spiritual state because I didn't particularly like myself. And that if I could get some high state of being, then maybe I would be kinder. Maybe I would be more loving. Maybe I would be kind to myself. And when I saw that, I knew that that wasn't the answer. That the answer was not some great enlightened state of mind, but the answer was a self-acceptance of me. And I began to do many, many practices to work with my own self-hatred. And self-hatred is just epidemic in, in well, it's hard to say. It's, it's in some cultures. It's not as strong in other cultures. It's hard to make a giant blanket generalization. But people are so <sighs> self-judgmental, self-critical, mean to themselves. If, you, if someone were as mean to you, as you are to yourself, you would probably never let them get away with it. But we do. We're that mean to ourselves. And it's so painful to see how we, we flagellate ourselves. So many of us want to be perfect. Here's one of my favorite poems, which um, I'm sure many of you know, but I can't resist. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. (laughs) 
Oh, good. There were people who hadn't heard it in the room. <laughs> There's so there, it's an epidemic of self-hatred, and we know that a, a lot of us experience it on the retreat. Mark was talking about it yesterday. The way we judge ourselves and our practice and compare. What I found in my meditation retreat was the importance of doing a combination of mindfulness practices to help me be aware of those judging thoughts. You know, every time my my mind would say, oh, that was stupid, why'd you do that? Oh, judging. You could just label it judging. You could count it, judging one, judging two, judging three. It's only 10 in the morning. Wow. (laughs) Judging 59. Oh, my gosh. Um, So mindfulness, kindness practice directed towards myself not sending kindness to anybody else, but practices of kindness and self-compassion. And then a recognition of the shared humanity. That I'm not the only one. That none of you are the only one when you're struggling with self-hatred. We're all struggling with self-hatred. And this is, um, some of you are familiar with the work of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer who have developed mindful self-compassion. This is her, how she thinks about it. My, uh, that self-compassion, by the way, is not self-esteem. Self-compassion is the willingness, the, the appreciation of ourselves, even in spite of our flaws. It's not telling us that we have to be better. And the way that they t- every, every kid is being told, good job, good job, right? It's not that. That leads to comparison. That leads to a feeling of, I'm not good unless my parent tells me I'm good, you know? Um, but self-compassion is this recognition that we are good as we are, even with our flaws and imperfections. And so through these practices, the practices, the very practices that you are doing, the very practices of mindfulness, mindfulness of our thinking, loving kindness, metta practice for, for ourselves. And as I said, this recognition of shared humanity that we can start to transform. And I watched it in myself and I've watched it in thousands of students over the years that people with strong levels of self-hatred can transform. And it's extraordinary. It's so amazing to see. There's a beautiful quote I love from the, um, the feminist theorist Bell Hooks, who says, When I talked with friends and acquaintances about self-love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion, as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self-love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self-centeredness and selfishness. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. So we begin with ourself. We begin with ourself. It is not selfish to try to love yourself. So many students come to me and they say, I can't send kindness to myself because everybody else is suffering so much. And I say, no, no, you got to start with you. Well, you can do it simultaneously. You can do both. What happened for me as I began to heal the drivenness and the self-hatred and I began to have more and more equanimity and ease in my practice? And this happened over time. We're not talking overnight. We're talking over... 10, 15 years. Um, But there were lots of moments in between where there was more and more freedom and happiness and joy and connection. Was that once the spiritual striving and the self-judgment and self-hatred began to lessen, that I began to have more and more access to that kind of boundless state that I first experienced when I was 12 years old. That this connection, I had, I had begun to let go, let go of these identities, let go of the self-judgment, let go of my striving. And what is left in the wake of letting go? What is left in the wake of letting go? When you have been, let's just talk on a minute level, when you have been caught in something since you've been here on this retreat and you're like really caught 
And then somehow, for some reason, it just drops, right? You just drop. And suddenly, what's left? What's left? You know what I'm talking about? What's left? Peace. What else? Freedom. Expansiveness. Lightness. When we're contracted around something and then there's a dropping, a letting go, this is when the freedom begins to arise. And it happens in minute ways, moment to moment, and it happens in big, big ways as well, when identities fall apart. But it can happen, like, in, a, in you know, I really, really have got to get some more of that um, pea soup or whatever it was today. <laughs> it was pea soup. <laughs> Well, the lunch was a little bit better, right? It was, excuse me, I'm comparing. (laughs) I preferred the lunch personally, but anyway, I can't even remember what it was. Oh, it was that bean soup. But anyway, you're wanting it, you're wanting it, and then you just kind of realize, wow, I'm really attached here, and you just let go, and you don't need another sweet potato, even though they were so crispy and delicious. And you just kind of let go into, oh, I don't need this to be happy. There's freedom here. Wow, there's freedom here. And what, what emerges, my experience and the experience of countless students, is that this is where we open to our own inner goodness, our own Buddha nature, our own na- vast true nature, our natural awareness, bright and luminous and shining and open, and spacious, and connected, and loving, and warm, and deep. And it's like this, this, this radiance, this inner radiance that's within all of us, right? That we can access it. Now, it may not, especially on a first retreat, you know, what I'm talking about may sound like, oh, woo-woo or something, but but you have all had glimpses of it. Just a few of you were saying when you dropped something, when you stopped holding on so tightly, we have these glimpses of waking up. And it's like a settling back into our being, into our own luminosity. And sometimes it's just a whisper. And sometimes it's a much bigger feeling. Sometimes people keep talking about this today. People were talking about the sense of coming home of showing up on this retreat and just, ah, I was waiting to come back to myself, right? And and so we, as we do our practice, we have more and more moments of waking up into our own inner nature, our own true nature. And oh, it's so incredible. Aldous Huxley says, our own consciousness shining void, inseparable from the great body of radiance, is subject to neither birth nor death, as the same as the immutable light. This is a beautiful quote from one of his books. So that's what we're uncovering here. We're uncovering our natural radiance, or what I like to call natural awareness. Sometimes I wonder, this is just a speculation, if the insights that arise is kind of our mind making sense and finding ways to think about our own natural radiance. But once we do that, and once you come on a retreat and you have a glimmer, a taste, and then you keep coming back and you have more and more experiences, and then there's healing to do, and there's challenges, and then there's life challenges, and you know, and then, but once once we've stepped on the path, that's it. Like you're on it. Sorry, too bad. You're on there. <laughs> you can't. You can't. There's nowhere else to go because now you know that our journey is a, one of waking up, and we hopefully continue our daily practice and we go on more retreats and then life interferes and most of us don't live in a place of boundlessness boundless radiance much of the time that's not what happens but we well I'll get to that in a minute but what I will say wait I gotta read you this poem it's it came in my email today but it's, it's so much about the integration of of living our path. And it's a poem by someone named Brad Aaron Modlin, who is a 
Ohio poet. I hadn't heard of him before today. The poem is called, What You Missed That Day You Were Absent From Fourth Grade. (laughs) Mrs. Nelson explained how to stand still and listen to the wind, how to find meaning in pumping gas, how peeling potatoes can be a form of prayer. She took questions on how not to feel lost in the dark. After lunch, she distributed worksheets that covered ways to remember your grandfather's voice. Then the class discussed falling asleep without feeling you had forgotten to do something else, something important, and how to believe the house you wake up in is your home. This prompted Mrs. Nelson to draw a chalkboard diagram detailing how to chant the psalms during cigarette breaks and how not to squirm for sound when your own thoughts are all you can hear, also that you have enough. The English lesson was that I am is a complete sentence. And just before the afternoon bell, she made the math equation look easy, the one that proves that hundreds of questions and feeling cold and all those nights spent looking for whatever it was you lost and one person add up to something. So our life becomes our practice. Our life is this journey. And our life can be about everything is included. Everything is included to help us wake up more and more. Joanna Macy, the wonderful eco-philosopher and meditation teacher, she says, it's my experience that the world itself has a role to play in our liberation. It's very, it's very pressures, pains, and risks can wake us up, release us from the bonds of ego, and guide us home to our vast true nature. The world becomes part of our practice. So I said, you know, most of us are not typically living from a place of that, that recognition of our natural awareness. Most of us tend not to. Some people do. But when we've had tastes of it and tastes of our goodness and tastes of our interconnection and tastes of letting go and tastes of freedom, we start to have to make decisions based on that. We start to have to ask ourselves some serious questions like, like, what do we want our life to look like? And is this relationship serving my, the purpose of more awakening? And what do I need to let go of? Is there a sacrifice I need to make? What are we willing to sacrifice to have more freedom? Is this choice I'm making leading me to more wholeness or more separation? So our life begins to manifest more and more in alignment with our deepest knowing our deepest understanding of ourselves our recognition of reality becomes our guide what leads to more compassion what leads to more freedom what leads to more letting go we have to ask ourselves these questions and then we begin to live from it and then here's what happens you live from it and then there's more freedom and more letting go and it's kind of a a serves us it's like a loop that serves us it leads to more ethical behavior Remember the first day here, you took those five precepts. Well, guess what? They're not just for retreat. They can also be for life. Some people choose to really follow them as a commitment to life. Living with a commitment to not kill and to take only what's offered to them and to be wise with their sexuality and be careful with intoxicants and consumption and to be wise with their speech this is a way we can live because it is supportive of our waking up and then we start to view life from the lens of what will serve this process of being on the spiritual path all of our problems, all of, all of the indecision and the confusion and what do I do here and the difficulties and the, 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 the hard, hard things that so many of us encounter in life become doorways to waking up. They just do. Just when you think you're doing great, something happens. 
Have you noticed that? You've probably heard this one before, but autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. Takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. Can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. Still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. (laughs) Right? There's always something. There's always something. But the good news is that something, we can look at that something that appears, the illness in our family or the loss of a job or the end of a marriage. or the, We can look at this as, oh no, poor me, victim, it's the end of my life. Or we can look at things as this is a pathway to deeper understanding, to deeper love and compassion and connection. And I would say that for myself, in the last decade, there's been many, many things I've had to deal with, you know, finding, well, more than the 10 years, but 15 years or so, finding work that was meaningful to me. And, and it wasn't just, it didn't just magically appear. I didn't just suddenly show up here and here I am. There was a lot of visioning and dreaming and getting help and trying to understand where, what, what I needed to do to be impactful in the world. And there was my, you know, many things in my life journey, deciding to have a baby and the path of parenting, which is probably its own Dharma talk, right? I'll tell you the one thing that's the hardest, but that I learned the most, is letting her be exactly as she is without trying to make her be different. Oh, that's hard. That's where I practice a lot. Going through, so, 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 so many things in my life, hard stuff, stuff that, challenging stuff, the dissolution of my marriage, the, the being a parenting and relating to the suffering of the world, being a parent during these times. There's, it's the last thing I just want to touch on because we're in a time of great, well, it's a really, really hard time to be alive. And it's funny to sit here in a meditation hall while there's so much going on that we have, feel like so out of our control. And I feel like one of the greatest edges of practice is to learn that the work that we do internally is, makes a huge difference on what we do externally and how it can impact the suffering of the world. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Zen master, said, mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. For otherwise, what is the use of seeing? Once there is seeing, there must be acting. For what is the use of seeing? Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? So how can we take what we do here and help us have the strength to handle whatever changes are to come on our planet, uh, to stand up for what we believe in, to find a fierce compassion, to fight for for truth. This is the work of mindfulness too, and this is my edge, this is all of our edges. But it's not separate. It's not like you meditate and that's it and you're sitting there navel-gazing. It's absolutely deeply connected. Acting to protect our earth is a recognition of deep understanding of interdependence. Once we see clearly, we want to save what we love. Mark was saying last night, we want to preserve the depth and beauty of this planet that is so deeply connected. So I'll just end with one of my favorite poems. 
It's by um, the naturalist poet and essayist Diane Ackerman. It's called School Prayer. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the plants bursting with seeds, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple. I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home, and in the mansions of the stars. Let's just close our eyes for a moment, and... Taking a breath or two and just sensing what's happening for you, having listened. And I realized as I was talking about the spiritual journey, some of you may say, "Mm, it's not even really what I'm, I'm not there yet. That's okay. But for those of you who are, maybe just reflect for a moment on your own commitment to your own spiritual path, or just to living a life of more compassion, more connection, more care. Just reasserting, if it feels comfortable to you, that commitment Seeing life as practice, the service of more wisdom and compassion for our own sake, for all of the people we encounter, for the sake of this planet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.